friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for joining us again this week. Later on in the show, I'll be talking to my colleague, Ashley McGuire at the Catholic Association about Justice Alito's recent interview in the Wall Street Journal about the Dobbs leak and how it made him and the other justices objects of assassination attempts. This is scary stuff for a democratic nation like ours, which is dependent on so many of our democratic norms and the way our judiciary is able to or should be able to operate outside of those political pressures that we have seen, unfortunately, placed on them with the Dobbs leak. Before that, in the first part of the show, I'll be talking to Father Charles Trujols, who is the director of the Catholic Information Center in Washington, D.C. They are planning a Eucharistic procession on May 20th, and the Eucharist will be carried through the streets of downtown D.C., right in front of the White House. Welcome to the show, Father Charles and Angelica. Thank you. I'm so happy to be with you today. Oh, it's wonderful to have you, and we want to hear all about this wonderful plan that you have of having a Eucharistic procession starting out from the Catholic Information Center on May 20th this year, and especially, Father, how it connects to the Eucharistic revival that we should all be paying attention to and and trying to to live in our own lives and, and with our friends and family. So go ahead, Father, tell us about this Eucharistic procession. Absolutely. So, I, you know, I grew up in in Spain and uh, there we had many Eucharistic processions it's a kind of a tradition in the Catholic Church especially in Europe and then when I went to Rome um, I I continued to um, attend the Eucharistic processions at, at that time. This is in the at the end of the 1990s and the beginning of the, the year 2000 <laughs> and afterwards in which John Paul II also had this Eucharistic procession from St. John Lateran to uh, St. Mary Major, and I would attend those processions. So when we started uh, to talk about the Eucharistic revival here in the U.S., uh, it came to my mind this desire to organize a Eucharistic procession in Washington, D.C., wherever where we are placed. The, the Catholic Information Center is just three blocks away from the White House, just that they're downtown. And uh, so I started to talk about this to uh, my staff at the Catholic Information Center and to other people. And uh, we came with this idea of um, of having one and so that many people can express and show their faith in the Blessed Sacrament, which is so important in our country. I mean, to express our faith and to worship um, the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. So this is kind of the background a little bit of how this Eucharistic procession came about. And uh, and Angelica, who is with us, uh, is behind all the uh, organization of this uh, procession, which is coming up uh, really nicely. And uh, there is a lot of expectation here in Washington, D.C. and in many other places around here. Now, now the organizational challenges, I'm sure, are huge. And I want to hear about that from Angelica, because um, you are in a, in a rather an important spot in the nation where uh, security is an issue and um, and that I'm sure is, is concerning you and you're also expecting many hundreds of people. I myself, I'm flying up from Miami for the procession with my husband. My husband Steve is going to help you, Father, and, and Angelica organize things. I'm sure you have a whole cadre of willing helpers um, because this is a beautiful thing. But Father, first tell me, what? Um, how do you see this as an evangelic? How is this present to you as an evangelical opportunity, an apostolic opportunity to parade our Lord through the streets of D.C.? Because there's there's a lot of uh, different details there that we could that we could tease out. So I think, first of all, having Jesus going through the streets of Washington, just that 
Mm-hmm. It's a huge, huge, it's going to have a huge impact in our city and in our country. I can picture Jesus going through different towns in the Holy Land, right, 2,000 years ago. And I, you know, it comes to my mind when he entered Jericho, right? And there were so many people who wanted to see Jesus and to hear from him. And we have this character, right, Zacchaeus, who was short and had to climb mm-hmm. a tree to see Jesus. So Jesus, when Jesus passes by, everyone is impacted in one way or another. So there's a lot of grace coming out from a Eucharistic procession. And there are so many um, needs in for our country and so many intentions to pray for. And we also need, as Catholics, to show our uh, faith in the divinity of Jesus and also in, the, in his real presence in the Eucharist. And there is no better way to do that than expressing that publicly so that other people may know of Jesus' love for us, what he has done for us, how he has died and, and, and has risen for, for our salvation, right? And he has stayed uh, in, in the Eucharist for us to be able to be with him, to receive him in Holy Communion. So all these elements are going to be present in this wonderful Eucharistic procession that I hope many people in the country can attend. I have, I've seen many Eucharistic processions, and one thing that makes me think of that uh, people are going to be very impacted by is the reverence and the beauty with which we as Catholics do everything around uh, our Lord when He's present in the Eucharist, because that is that kind of reverence and that kind of delicacy of, of feeling and uh, treating Him like royalty, which He is, right? He's the King of, of the universe. That's something that's kind of missing in our modern culture where, where people are very casual and, and there's not that sense of things set aside because they are so sacred and so, so spectacular, so spectacularly above us, right, in every way and at the same time with us. Do you see, do you envision people being impacted by, by that beautiful delicacy with which we treat the Eucharist? Yes, they, I, I think so. We will be using all these elements, external elements that uh, we will use in a, a canopy, right? That mm-hmm. people are not used to that, mm-hmm. to see that, right? We will use in the incense. We will be using a beautiful uh, monstrance uh, to carry the Blessed Sacrament that people are going to see. And all these, and then, of course, all the um, servers and uh, priests and everyone who is going to be a part of the of this procession are going to show, as you say, the reverence and, and faith and love that our Lord deserves. And that is going to be, you know, influence the way people uh, look at this event, but especially they look at, at the Blessed Sacrament, right? So I expect, and, and we will have also, um, you know, the beauty of flowers, and, and uh, we are expecting people yeah, doing their first communion, boys and girls doing their first communion this year, throwing some uh, petals, right, oh, in front pretty. of the Blessed Sacrament, mm-hmm. right? So all these elements are going to be beautiful in themselves, and are going to demonstrate how, how much love of veneration and, 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 and faith we have. Do you agree, Father, that some of what's missing, some of what's broken in modern society has to do with that lack of reverence, with a lack of a place to put these feelings that that, that are real and that have an object, which is God, right? The the highest good and the, the ultimate beauty. We have, we don't seem to have a place to put it sometimes. Maybe that's part of what's broken in us in modern culture. Yeah, and sometimes, yes, you're right. And at the same time also, Many times we have these elements of uh, worship, acknowledgement of our faith in, in the churches, that is great, but it's good to also show it to our society and to the rest of the people who may not be coming to church, right? So they also need to see that, to be benefited from 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 God. So when all this is going on, um, I'm trying to picture the, the intensely busy streets of Washington, D.C. That's a that's a huge process that you're that you're talking about, right? A Eucharistic procession. Everything has to stop <laughs> on these streets. And and you're talking about the, the heart of the nation, in a sense. So, Angelica, how are you managing um, this very complicated process with the city, especially even and all the things that have to happen around it? Well, thanks be to God, uh, we have our parade permit. Uh, with um, through through the uh, the local police department, I I was brought in on this because Father Charles heard that I had helped to organize a Eucharistic procession up Capitol Hill with my parish four years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, before.
before COVID times, turned out to be an incredibly reverent um, Corpus Christi Sunday that kind of shocked Capitol Hill where, you know, there were row houses and we walked past the, you know, Senate and the House at the Capitol building, past the Supreme Court, et cetera. And it kind of shocked people. And I, I recall at that time, the the head of the, uh, the, the permit police there had asked my pastor, you know, what are you protesting? Because DC is always known for this, these frenetic protests. Whether yes. they'll block the streets at any time of the day, and you know it's chaos. And this was the exact opposite. So he responded, you know, we're not protesting; we're praying, and that's what we brought out to the streets, and that was what struck people, and that's what the CIC intends to do, and what Father Charles's inspiration is to bring prayer and the Lord to the streets. He, Father Charles, became a citizen. Um, he's a native Spaniard, but a citizen some seven or six years ago, forgive me, um, he's more detailed on that. Uh, and he had a perfect score. Um, and he <laughs> truly, he truly um, loves our country. And he sees the beauty of America. And sometimes I think in this very jaded world, um, we forget that and what America has done. Um, and, you know, the Christian, our Christian background here in the United States, and just adding a little bit more of a Catholic background. So uh, we are very blessed to have so many supporters. So we have a huge group of uh, volunteers who are contributing to add all these elements that Father Charles mentioned. The beauty of the flowers, the music. We have a scola, a volunteer scola of actually professionals. It, it's going to be stunning. And our workforce. So it really is a work of love here. You know, it's it's God's grace, uh, but a lot of uh, <laughs> putting pieces together. So um, yeah, I'm a little concerned because it is so close to everything. The, the center, it's really in the heart of Washington here, but um, I have a lot of faith that it will all turn out well. And um, I actually like a beautiful Saturday morning here in um, D.C. There's something calm about it. Um, I don't know if it's because everybody had been out the previous Friday night, so now it's calm on, on Saturday morning. So it makes it a little easier for families as well to, to come downtown. Well, not to bring up an, a, a delicate subject, but what about uh, security? Are you at all concerned about security? security with something so so moving as this and some people might see the Eucharist as a polarizing thing we don't as Catholics <laughs> we know it's God walking by it's God walking by and I think it's how we present ourselves so we will have the police the DC police will be there um, surrounding you know the procession and as I experienced four years ago uh, they did an incredible job I don't know where they stand on their ideology politics spirituality but you know they're professionals and they're there to protect those who are out in the city. So um, I actually have a lot of confidence that day. Yes, you, we may get somebody who's who sees the Eucharist and is completely you know, shocked by it. But I think, you know, it's how we present ourselves. And I think that's something that will just encourage people. Stick to the prayers we're praying. Stick to the reverence. Stick to the Lord. Keep your eyes on the monstrance and keep your eyes on Christ. And everything will be well. Father, when you talk about doing a Eucharistic procession and walking right by the White House, how close are you getting, first of all, to the White House in this procession? Well, well we chose a, a route that would be very symbolic for our country. Uh, we are going to be uh, walking on K Street, first of all, because we are on K Street, a very uh, kind of famous and important street in downtown. And then we will be hitting three parks, historical, I mean, parks that are have to do with our history in a big way. We are going to be passing by uh, Farragut Square, uh, which, you know, as uh, we know, he was uh, uh, the first admiral of our Navy, you know, and uh, he uh, fought in the uh, Civil War. Uh, we will be passing by Lafayette Square, which is just in front of the White House, right? We will be uh, passing by along all the long side of the park, Lafayette Square, of course, that has so much history. And we will be, uh, done, and then we finally we will hit the and third park, which is McPherson Square, before coming back to the CIC. So it's a route that covers a lot of elements of our nation history. And that's a, a great opportunity to, again, to put everything we have I in mean, our heart, our prayer um, in, in, in our nation, in our country, and to pray for everyone. So we will be, of course, passing by the White House, generally speaking, right? But mm -hmm. uh, it's not that we are passing by the White House, but it's 
it's there, right? And uh, so I would say that the government, the institutions, all will be benefited by the grace uh, of Jesus uh, passing by. I don't so this doubt is why it. I think it's so historic, in my opinion, um, what we are trying to accomplish here. Well, I don't doubt it. I know that the, the, the something, very many powerful things will be happening. One of the things that has been very difficult for us Catholics in the last few years has been that our president, who is, is a Catholic and, and, pr- and is proud of his faith and carries his rosary beads and, and goes to Mass, yet he has disappointed many of us because of his stance on abortion, especially, and other things which are very much... Um, very much fly in the face of the very basics of not just Catholicism, but Christianity, right? Like the love of neighbor, <laughs> love others as yourself. And that has to include all human beings from, from the beginning to the end of their lives. Um, many of us are, we hear about this Eucharistic procession and we say, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if, if people, powerful Catholics like our president were affected um, by the closeness uh, of Jesus as he walks by. Is this part of your prayer too? I mean, I know all of us, all of us Catholics pray for our president that he may come to his senses on some of these issues. Is that part of what you pray for, Father? Yeah, we pray for, for everyone, including our president. And everyone is welcome and invited, right, to mm-hmm. the to the procession. So, of course, this is going to impact um, the president, the people in government, the people in Washington, D.C., every, everyone. There is no way this is not going to have an influence in each one of us. And I have to say that it's going to help us, all of us, wherever we are in our faith, in our, um, our path, um, in our spiritual growth, right? It's going to help us to improve the way we um, behave, the way we deal with others, the way we love um, our neighbor. So... Absolutely. This is going to have, uh, uh, again, an impact in, in, in everyone, um, and including, you know, people in Congress, in government. Um, so that's also my, yes, that's my, um, my, 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 my hope, right, that everyone is going to have uh, uh, an improvement from this. <laughs> and Father, that brings me to the Catholic Information Center, because in a sense, what you are hoping to achieve with a Eucharistic procession is something you're hoping to achieve every day of your life with the presence of the Catholic Information Center in the heart of D.C., right in the center of power of, you could say, the power of the world, right? Like the worldly power of the world, in a sense, starts in D.C. When you think about the, the, the tremendous influence that the United States has in world polity, I mean, there's no place that is that were not felt, right, as a political power. Tell us about the CIC. What's the mission of the Catholic Information Center in its position right there? So we, what our mission is very simple, is to bring Christ to um, our city, downtown, especially downtown Washington, D.C., and by extension to all our country. And uh, we are precisely there because there are so many people who work and live in, in that area, and also people who come to Washington, D.C., right, to visit, and, and all of them come by, um, want to visit or see the, the White House. So we are giving them all the tools and instruments, you know, that they need to, I would say, grow in their love for God, in their spiritual life, and we have daily mass at noon, and we have confessions. I'm always there, available for confessions. We have a beautiful chapel. We have a also a bookstore and and we organize like many different events and book launches and speak and we have speakers and so it's a great instrument of um of that god has in his hands right to show and and to teach and to show his love uh to uh, everyone and one of my dreams just so you know um when i started running the CIC six years ago is that every Catholic who would come to Washington, D.C., and there are Catholics, there are millions of people who come to D.C. every year, that they wouldn't come not just to see the monuments and to learn about our history and, and everything else, but also to pray for our country. So this is why uh, we have a new tradition at the CIC, and that's my, my dream, that every Catholic would stop by the CIC to pray one Our Father, one Hail Mary, and one Glory be for our nation in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Mm-hmm. So we have a beautiful tabernacle. And if that were to happen, 
you know, I mean, I would say all our problems would disappear. Yes, I agree, (laughs) Father. Or or many of them, Mm -hmm. many of them. And they would be solved and and, uh, because so much prayer would be put into that. So that's kind of a little bit of what the CAC is. And uh, we are very uh, grateful. There are so many uh, benefactors and supporters of the CAC. We run the whole operation with uh, donations from around the country. And uh, we, and we have a very uh, small staff. Uh, we are three, seven of us working full-time, but we have a lot of, um, and we work with a lot of intensity and passion to bring about our mission. Have you found yourself uh, welcoming people to the CIC and maybe just sort of being blown away by by the effect on them of, of seeing this, this Catholicism so close, uh, so vivid, so strong, right where it's most needed? Yes, especially now that we have renovated the whole space and it's beautiful from, from the outside um, and from the inside, it looks like a, a small boutique, you know, when you can uh, buy jewels. Uh, but instead of jewels, we have the most precious jewel, which is the Blessed Sacrament, right? And this is why we have put together a design that helps us to accomplish our mission and at the same time to show the, the dignity and the reverence, again, you know, that we uh, have for for God, for our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and, they, and people are completely taken aback and they don't, they don't expect that. And on top of that, now we have started a small exhibit on the Shroud of Turin. Of Turin. So this uh, we have a replica, life-size replica, one of the most faithful life-size life-size replicas in, in, in the world. It's at the CIC where people can learn about uh, the passion of our Lord through that uh, artifact, right? That is one of the most studied artifacts in history, the, the real shroud. And to be able to see that and to learn about it, it's uh, that's the shroud that we are convinced was that wrapped Jesus, right, in the t- it's also a, a, a way of um, of benefiting in, in 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 growing in our understanding of Jesus's love for each one of us. Angelica, this is uh, why did you wanted to take on this project, which seems enormous to me. I mean, the logistics, just the logistics alone, seem daunting. Why are you attracted to this? Well, Father Charles asked me, and he's hard to say no to. Oh, so. I've, I've experienced that. <laughs> and your husband as well. Who My husband too. Us. With the procession. No, this is a, a great love. So, you know, I got to do one before four years ago, which was a little large, uh, smaller, I think. I, I really do believe in the real presence power here from the CIC. Uh, back in 2020, there were things happening in downtown D.C., near the White House yeah. where you know, there were riots. And frankly, I think it was uh, Jesus's real presence where um, like every other building and every other window looked was smashed or there was looting and things like that. Our building that holds, you know, wonderful tabernacle containing Jesus maybe had one thing of graffiti and that was it. And I, I think that really is the power of Christ uh, because nothing else was salvaged throughout this entire neighborhood. I didn't uh, know that. That's impressive. It was was it was something else and I, I i remember just friends uh who who know i work here and who love the catholic information center one thing that is so beautiful about washington dc um and our suburbs is the strong catholic culture here that you frankly don't find elsewhere it's one of the reasons why i don't think i've i've ever left this area i'm one of these weird people i'm from the area and i've stayed in the area these people who are truly faithful and in love with the lord and trying to find community in christ they they've come to the And this is actually also before I worked here was a strong part of my own formation. So once I, you know, had my own kind of wake up, come to Jesus moment as the Protestants day, I I was working about like a a block away. And I walked in one day and was like, this is a bookstore. This is so interesting. Didn't expect it. Bought a biography of John Paul and then walked out and didn't come back for a few years and until I had that moment. And it was actually that book that I was, uh, I got a little sick at the time and I picked it up and I just read Peggy Noonan's biography of John Paul and it was like, wow. And I, you know, I, I attribute sort of sort of my, my own conversion. I never left the church. I just was a Sunday Catholic, basically, you know, checklist Catholic, getting the main basics done. But it's more about avoiding hell versus going to heaven back 
back then. And, uh, you know, one book from the CIC really just helped open my eyes. And uh, what a lovely, what a lovely testimony. And I think that the Eucharistic procession is going to have that times many thousands of people who see our Lord passing by. Father, we only have a minute left or a couple, but tell us, please, how you see the Eucharistic procession fitting into the the idea of, of Eucharistic revival, which uh, all of us should be, I think, engaged in heart and soul. So this is one of the uh, devotions or aspects that we can engage with, right? I mean, there are in, in trying to incorporate more in our hearts, in our lives, the, the faith that we have in Jesus, who is the summit and source of our spiritual life. So in this context, I think that this procession is going to help many people realize of the importance of um, this, especially this year, but in general in our lives, to grow in in love for uh, for the for the Eucharist and and how we deal with Him and how we our intimacy with with Jesus, how we can can grow always. And we will have before we start the procession, we will have mass. At the CIC, there will be many people, I'm sure, that will not fit in the chapel. They will be in the street. And what we are planning to do is to live stream the Mass. You know, everyone will be outside, maybe attending, not maybe, attending the Mass through their phones or tablets. And then we will come out, you know, to give communion to everyone. So it's going to be a beautiful start of the of the procession and you can find everything on the uh, CIC website which is cicdc.org and there we, you can have all the information of the um, of the mass the, the, the schedule and also if people want to um, RSVP or register that would be great so that we can have more or less a sense of how many people and we expect hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people you know how much how many people we can expect you know for um, the organization from the organizational point of view i'm very much looking forward to it and and i hope that our listeners will if they're in the in the area of dc they will register and and attend and if not they will accompany all of us with their prayers Thank you so much, Father Charles and Angelica, for joining me today at Conversations with Consequences. And thank you for organizing what I think will be a tremendously powerful experience of walking Christ through the streets of, of the, the power center of the world. Thank you, Grace. Thank you so much. Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm happy to have my TCA colleague, Ashley McGuire, on with me for the rest of the show. So it's one year since the leak, and um, this last weekend, Justice Samuel Alito was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal, and he spoke about how they never identified the leaker. And I'm really, I'm really surprised that it's been a whole year, and with all the, the the things that are available to people, forensic tools, right? To find out who does these things. They haven't been able to find who did this terrible act. Right. I mean, I think we should probably put <clears throat> haven't been able to in scare quotes. I mean, in yes. the recent <laughs> interview that um, Justice Alito did with the Wall Street Journal, he said, you know, I think they, you know, the marshals did a good job. But he's like, I'm pretty sure I know who did it and why. And, you know, there was all these theories being spun. And it's kind of like some of them got really complicated. Like, oh, maybe it was, you know, this staff. It's kind of an Occam's razor situation. Like the simplest explanation is the most obvious. Um, It was probably a clerk. And they were probably realizing that the writing was on the wall. Um, and they knew that this momentous decision was coming and thought they would do anything they could to try to stop it. And they didn't care what that meant for the integrity of the court. Um, They didn't care what that meant for the lives and safety of the Supreme Court justices. Um, And they didn't seem to care about what that meant for, as you pointed out, um, the people who would be in the very wide wake of this sort of violent reaction of uh, the abortion movement, which includes, you know, as the Catholic vote tracker shows, um, some 150 churches and pregnancy resource centers, um, including one that was just um, down the street from me that um, was the subject of an arson attack. 
and <clears throat> a number of desecrative acts to the church. Um, but, you know, specifically the, you know, I think it's, it was an unprecedented thing that happened. And, and Justice Alito um, in this interview that he did said that it really kind of cast a shadow of, of suspicion and mistrust um, on the court. And, um, or, or his his exact words where he said, it created an atmosphere of suspicion and distrust. We worked through it, and last year we got our work done. Um, but, you know, that's, you know, a, a, an atmosphere of suspicion and distrust is not healthy in a democratic society um, when that is the attitude that people have towards their highest court, the, the court that is supposed to... Um, not just symbolize, but be sort of the highest mark of justice and the rule of law. And so for that betrayal, it wasn't, you know, it was so much more than just a leak. And, um, you know, it's really sad and sick to see that a year later, they quote, haven't been able to find that this is a time of unprecedented, um, you know, abilities with, you know, AI and, and, internet tracking and things. I mean, I think everybody feels like, you know, you could be two rooms away and say one shoe brand and then your phone's going to be um, advertising that to you, but they can't figure out who of the handful of people that work in, and have access to um, an unpublished Supreme Court draft um, leaked it to Politico. Do you think that this is part of the general loosening of norms uh, in our society as though sacred things can no longer be held sacred old traditions are spurned i feel like the the all these the supreme court has this aura about it uh of impregnability right it's a it's a non-political in uh enterprise the the people there in the court trust each other to behave to to behave in a in a higher nobler way they're there as arbiters final arbiters right to interpret to help the entire country interpret the law in ways that are um, removed from petty passions and removed from political pa pressures uh, of the day, for the political pressure of the day. And, and this kind of leak just seems to, just seems to um, put into play all that kind of tearing down of noble traditions that our country's built on. Yeah, I, I definitely think that is certainly part of it. And I think that's been underway for a long time. I mean, I think about, you know, the Clinton scandal and the total lack of respect for um, that, you know, a, a different highest office. But I also think that it it just really laid bare what abortion um, has done to the rule of law in this country and actually sort of in a ironic way gets to the heart of why overturning Roe and the Dobbs decision was so incredibly important because as Justice Alito writes in his opinion, really what 50 years of Roe did was just divide us more um, on this issue, you know, he says Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak and the decision has had damaging consequences and far from bringing about a national settlement of the abortion issue, Roe and Casey have inflamed debate and deepened division. And, you know, I think really sort of tarnished respect for the constitution too. Um, and, you know, the fact that whoever leaked to this opinion was so ideologically blinded by their passion on the issue that, you know, they were willing to flout, um, you know, decorum, the law, the rule of law, you know, at the highest level with, with such seismic consequences shows just how deeply um, damaging abortion politics has been to this country to the point that, you know, as you point out, that they're really brazen about the way they responded, saying things like, we're going to have a night of rage. I mean, what? Um, you know, and and these brazen attacks on, on um, innocent people doing good work, helping, you know, vulnerable women. I mean, I'll side note, <clears throat> just say that when I 
after the Dobbs decision, I felt like I kind of needed to put my money where my mouth was and got involved with our local pregnancy center. And I was a struck by the breadth of the services and things that we provide. Um, but, but even more so I was struck by the fact that nobody who comes to us is looking for, is even contemplating abortion. Like they, they've already made their decision. It's so paternalistic. Like women are, they know what's, they know that they can get an abortion. Um, they're capable of making their decisions, their own decisions about what they want to do. And these are women who want their babies and just desperately need financial help and resources. Uh, many of them are even, you know, partnered or married. Yeah, I was going to say afford... my, my personal experience when I'm at the center, I see mostly couples. Yeah. Um, lots of couples, many afford... married couples. They're simply, they're simply, like you say, they simply can't afford or or the the thought of affording this baby is 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 just terrifying to them. Like, how will they do it? They want to do it. Right. They know they're going to have to do it, and they come to these centers for help. Yeah, as you say, it's it's a paternalistic. It's a weird paternalism to say women somehow don't know their options. Of that course, they're women being, know their that options. They're being deceived, yeah. right? That they're being deceived. There's no deception going on at the centers. It's simply <laughs> an op- the open hand of material assistance, and I think even more than that, um, a listening ear. A warm hug <laughs> sometimes is so is is what they is what some of these young women really need, especially the young women really need, and and a promise to be there to to accompany, and and to be that person who can say, okay, I don't know how to f- help you with this, but I know somebody who does, and I'm going to make that phone call for you. So important, you know. Justice Alito in the interview, he he said something that to me was very shocking. I'm, I grew up in Latin America, and I'm surrounded by people who are exiles from Latin America because I live in Miami. And and one of the great uh, realities of life in Latin America is that if you go into politics, if you go into, uh, uh, if you want to become a judge, be part of the judiciary, sometimes journalism, depending on the country, you are putting yourself in real physical danger of being snuffed out for bringing things to light that the ruling power doesn't want brought to light or by being an opposition power, in the opposition. And he said, those of us who were thought to be in the majority thought to have approved my draft opinion were really targets of assassination. It was rational for people to believe that they might be able to stop the decision in Dobbs by killing one of us. I mean, to me, that just, that just sort of uh, froze my heart <laughs> to think that in the United States, the uh, Supreme Court justice, you know, that a person who should be inviolable so that he or she can make decisions based on the law, based on the constitution, based on based on what it's supposed to be based on, not fear, would be in fear of assassination. It just shows, you know, the, my favorite line from the opinion, from his opinion, Dobbs, was when he said, we do not pretend to know how our political system or society will respond to today's decision overruling Roe and Casey. And even if we could foresee what will happen, we would have no authority to let that knowledge influence our decision. We can only do our job, which is to interpret the law, apply longstanding principles of stare decisis and decide this case accordingly. And, you know, when you look back a year later at those words, it really shows what a courageous man he is and the justices that signed along with them because on the one hand yeah it's appalling to think that we live in a time when um judges uh impartial judges are um targets for harassment and actual assassination attempts i mean you know the attempt on justice kavanaugh's life there was this really sick attempt to downplay it like oh this was just some crazy guy um, this was a crazy guy. I mean, maybe he was crazy, but he certainly there was a lot of premeditation involved, and he had an extraordinary amount of weapons. Um, That's how assassinations start, yeah. right? Somebody makes a plan, yeah. somebody gets the weapons, and somebody makes that first move to get to your house and and kill you. I mean, that's that's how assassinations I mean, anybody, work. Yeah, and anybody who's willing to go to the point of trying to assassinate somebody is. <laughs> somewhat crazy um but 
it just shows the incredible courage that it took and then the courage to still stay the line after they saw the you know the initial backlash which started right away um and to basically um stay unchanged and you know it's something that they're still paying for i mean in dc there was a story not too long ago about justice kavanaugh being chased out the back door of a you know prominent steakhouse in dc and justice coney barrett um you know her children being harassed her the homes of these justices being doxxed i mean look at what they're doing to clarence thomas it's like you know this new attempt to smear him in the press um and you know try to delegitimize him they'll stop at nothing i mean they did what they did to justice kavanaugh even during his confirmation hearings just the lowest of the low um kind of ad hominem attacks you know attacking his character and i think again to go back to what i said earlier that this is all this all gets back to what abortion politics has done to us and you know my sort of prayer is that one day with more time to kind of let the the nerves calm down after overturning roe v wade and and to have some time of uh you know again letting the people decide at at the state level through their elected representatives and see that you know the, the sky isn't falling and that actually it's it's healthy and good for this country to be able to um, not just have our debates and and arguments over this just be like screaming into the wind, but actually feel like we have a stake in the, in the debate um, that some of this will fade away. Um, but I think it's hard to think about it because we've all lived in the Roe v. Wade state of affairs for so long that we don't know anything different. Um, and even the makeup of this entire Supreme Court you know, that tells that story, too. I think in the Wall Street Journal interview, it, it talked about the fact that, you know, Justice Scalia, he was confirmed almost unanimously. And by the time we got to, you know, Justices Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, it was like an all out, you know, fight in the mud mm -hmm. and, um, you know, passing with, a, you know, I'll never forget Justice I'm sorry, um, Senator Collins going down to the Senate floor. And, you know, she's somebody who's pro-choice. And uh, she, another sidebar, just somebody who I admire so much for the courage that it took as somebody who's pro-choice, who knew, you know, what the implications of um, affirming or voting to confirm um, a Justice Kavanaugh would mean going down and saying, this is not how things should be run, you know, slinging mud in a man's character to try and stop him from being confirmed because of how he might vote, you know, on a case that doesn't even exist at this point. This is the complete breakdown of the rule of law. But, um, you know, that's how high the stakes have been. And I think all of our kind of nerves are really frayed by it. And we just owe such a debt of gratitude to the courage of Justice Alito and the judges who really took the hit um, personally. And, you know, in terms, yeah, tr personally on in, in how they voted um, and the courage that it took to vote the way that they did in jobs to give the country the gift of being able to move forward from all of this. Well, you're absolutely right, Ashley. And thank you for pointing out their courage. It, and having read the interview, you see that it extends even to the courage to say, I might become the object of assassination attempts, which we did see, in fact, happen in the, in the case of Judge Kavanaugh. So yeah, thank God that the reign of Roe v. Wade is over. And let's keep working and praying towards an America where the little babies, little children, little Americans don't have to bear all the sins of their fathers and mothers and 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 the lack of care and love that that Roe v. Wade instilled in so many American hearts. So thank you, Ashley, for joining me today on Conversations with Consequences. Thanks, Gracie. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. 
Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you. As we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. Last week, as you remember, Jesus spoke to us as the Good Shepherd. This week, he picks up in the confidence that should flow from our relating to him in this way. Do not let your hearts be troubled, he tells us, in words taken from Holy Thursday that the church listens to in the light of the triumph of Jesus' resurrection. You have faith in God, have faith also in me, he says. He doesn't want us to worry, to be anxious, to be disturbed about anything. He wants us to trust in him. He tells us that he's going to prepare a place for us in his Father's house, so that where he is, we also will be. He's referring not just to his desire to come back and take us to be with him eternally. He's alluding to the fact that right now he has prepared a place in the Father's house for us, for our prayers, for our hopes, for our sorrows, for our joys. When he tells the apostles, where I'm going, you also know the way, meaning what he had already told them three times, that he would be handed over to death and on the third day rise. St. Thomas protested that the apostles neither knew Jesus' destination or path. That's when Jesus summarized everything for them and for us in one of the most famous self-identifications he ever gave. I am the way, the truth, and the life, he says, emphasizing that he is the gate to the sheepfold and that no one can come to the Father's house except through him. We've heard Jesus' self-description as the way, the truth, and the life so many times that their revolutionary shock value is almost entirely lost in us. But to first century Jewish listeners, they would have heard Jesus saying that he was the full realization of their three deepest religious aspirations. Jews had been praying for centuries in the Psalms, teach me your way, O Lord. And Jesus was saying, I am the way. They had been imploring God, teach me your decrees that I may walk in your truth. Jesus was saying, I am the truth. They had been begging, show me the path of life. Jesus was indicating, I am the life. Jesus was saying that he was the personification of their deepest religious desires and the answer to their most insistent prayers. But these aspirations were not exclusively Jewish. They point to the perennial needs that spring up in every human life. Many times we're lost, we don't know where to go, we're wandering through a valley of darkness with no clear sense of direction. To all of us in those circumstances, Jesus says, I am the way. There are many others who are stumped before life's biggest question, who are searching for answers and meaning, who don't know what to believe, who don't trust because they don't know whom to trust. Jesus tells us, I am the truth. You have faith in God, have faith also in me. There are countless others who are struggling to have hope, who feel like they've been having the marrow of existence sucked out of them, who often seek happiness and fulfillment in ways that can never deliver. To them, Jesus responds, I am the life. What does it mean for us to relate to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life? Let's take each of Jesus' affirmations in turn. He says, I am the way. Probably every single one of us has had the experience of being lost when we're driving. We lose a cell phone signal now for a GPS and don't have a map in unfamiliar territory. And we can experience a moment of panic. Jesus comes into our life and says simply, follow me. He personalizes our direction in life. He sends us as our spiritual GPS, the Holy Spirit. He gives us as a sure and true set of coordinates, sacred scripture in the catechism, in the teaching of the church, he found it. In a life full of going through uncharted territory, occasional roadblocks and detours, he and his gifts help us to keep our eyes firmly fixed on him so that he can lead us to the eternal destination of the Father's house. The most important thing is not just to know that Jesus is the way, but to follow him on the way he indicates. His way is not easy or popular. It's the way of the cross, not the way of the crowds. A path of self-giving love instead of self-gratifying egotism. It's the way of mercy, crossing the road as good Samaritans, caring for those in need, sacrificing for them, helping to save them. It's the way of the Beatitudes, not the way of worldly fame, fortune, and fetishes. Jesus' way is an uphill climb, but to be Christian means to build our path on his path, to journey together with him in the world. Just as he told us last week that the Good Shepherd calls his sheep by name and they heed his voice as he guides them to verdant pastures. So Jesus' true disciples relate to him by dynamically seeking to follow him wherever he leads. Next, Jesus says, I am the truth. The day after Jesus pronounced these words to the apostles in the upper room, Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth? 
The truth is, basically, the correspondence between something, a phrase, a thought, an idea, and reality. Truth is what's real. When Jesus says that he is the truth, what he's ultimately declaring is that he is the ground of all reality, that he is what is most real, that after everything we know passes away, even our own body, God still is. Too often many of us can treat other things as more real than Jesus in the truths of faith. The real, real world we convince ourselves of the clothes we're wearing, the money in our pockets, the people we're meeting, the decisions of those in public office, the march of military forces, the consequences of scientific discoveries, or even the movie sitcoms and so-called reality shows we're watching. But the real world is what God grounds. It's where He is. We enter into that real, real world in prayer, the sacraments, God's Word, and life according to the Spirit. Jesus, after all, does more than teach us truths. He is the truth. To live in the real world, we need to ground ourselves most deeply in Him as our cornerstone. We need to trust in Him, even and especially when it goes against what worldly gurus, false prophets, what He called last week thieves, marauders, and wolves, and what the latest poll numbers say. When we build us, ourselves on Him as our rock, then we can withstand the storms that inevitably come. To build ourselves elsewhere is to build on sand. Third, Jesus says, I am the life. Jesus is more than just alive. He is life incarnate. We owe our physical life to Him. And if He didn't hold us in existence right now, we would cease to exist. We owe our spiritual life to Him. And God willing, we will owe our eternal life to Him too, if we share His life in this world so as to partake in it eternally in the next. Jesus came, as He said to us in last week's Gospel, so that they may have life and have it to the full. But He doesn't force His life on us. He wants us to choose to live off of Him, to draw our very existence from Him. We do this most especially in the sacraments, in prayer and in the moral life of love. During this three-year-plus Eucharistic revival taking place in the United States, we're called to grow and help others to grow in the way we live off Jesus in the Eucharist, who tells us, I am the bread of life. Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. And he goes on, just as the Father was life sent me, and I have life because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. I am the life. The life of Jesus that we receive in the sacraments is more than simply batteries for the soul to keep us going. It's supposed to be the principle of our existence so that eventually we're able to say with St. Paul, it's no longer even I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave his life for me. Whereas the world believes that the most important things in life, the essential foundation, are money, property, education, influence, and health, we recognize that it's our relationship with Jesus. The most important thing in life, we realize, is this personal discovery of Jesus, forming this personal life-changing friendship with Him, and subjectively drawing our existence from the One who objectively gives and holds us in life. We rejoice that this Sunday we'll have the chance to have a consequential conversation with Jesus, to follow Him to the upper room, Calvary, and from the empty tomb, to hear His truth and receive His life. We ask Him as we get ready to give us the grace not to let our hearts be troubled, to have faith in Him, and to build our entire life on Him, so that no matter what storms come that blow and buffet against us, we may always remain firm in the faith that will bring us to eternal happiness in that house of the Father that Jesus, out of love, has gone to prepare for us. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 